Have you ever started a new position only to find adversity and challenges right away? This week's guest, Dr. Jill Seiler, shares how as a new superintendent, she fought through fear and failure to build a vision and discover new solutions for her district. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Jill, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And as you know, on the Aspire podcast, I absolutely love to get the leadership journey of my guests. So if you wouldn't mind just letting us know what you did previously before becoming a superintendent. Well, and I love your name of your podcast, which is Aspire, because I think no matter where we're at in our journey, we're all aspiring to be somewhere. And so I started my leadership journey as an assistant principal, served at the campus leadership level for a couple of years, moved on to central office and served there for several years and then made the big jump into leadership. And of course, I was a classroom teacher and a coach for six years and absolutely loved that before I started. Did you always aspire to be a superintendent or was that something that just eventually came to be that you desired that position? So I don't think that I really had intentions to do any of the roles that I ultimately landed in when I was first starting. When I was a classroom teacher, I loved being in the classroom. When I started as a a campus administrator, same thing was really, really happy doing that. Didn't see myself working in central office. When I got to that level, the same, loved serving in that capacity. And then when I moved into the superintendency, um, it was really other people around me encouraging me um, to take that step before I even considered it. So I want to talk about the interview process in general, because I know that a lot of my aspiring leaders and listeners have you know, mentioned, man, that is such a scary journey. And some people have these crazy stories of failure. And a lot of them have, you know, stories of success. So in your leadership journey, how was the interview process? How did you prepare for that? And did you have any, you know, terrible ones or great ones throughout that process? Well, I think like every leader, I think we've all had a little bit of both. (laughs) And so I'll tell you my very first interview for leadership was when I was going into, um, to become an assistant principal. And, you know, that first jump that you make out of the classroom is so difficult. And I was going through my principal certification time at that time. And, um, my leader of the program was going out to do some training at this specific district. And there was a great assistant principal role open there. So before I walked out, I said, Hey, David, um, there's a role man that I would really like to have in this district. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll check it and see. And so sure enough, I was in my principal certification class and got this memo delivered to me to, hey, call this person. It was the assistant superintendent of that district. Called, visited with her, had a great interview with her. She took me to the principal and the principal really had said to me, hey, Jill, we've already closed this job. Like I've interviewed a ton of people. We didn't find what we're looking for. We're really not going to hire at this time. And at the very end, because I had done so much homework, had just said, hey, man, I, I realized that you were just you know one student away from really not meeting academic expectations, whatever the accountability system was at the time, and yeah. had a good conversation about what they were thinking about. And that really turned uh, the tide for that interview. He put down his pen. He was like, hey, let's go take a tour. And, and I got my first AP job. So, mm-hmm. you know, interviewing and preparing for interviews is so important. But uh, I'll tell you about my worst interview. 
which was the very first time that I interviewed for a superintendent position. And like any interview in the past, and even more so when you get to the superintendency, that preparation is so key. I knew that district backwards and forward, every challenge that they were facing, every accomplishment that they had. I knew every board member by name and occupation. And I sat down and they started asking questions one by one around the table and man, about 20 minutes passed. And they said that that had been their last question. And for a superintendent interview, 20 questions in 20 minutes is not the goal. And uh, man, I walked out of there and I just, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm sure I did a little bit of both, but I learned so much in that process. And of course that was a huge failure. Many would say that it was, but I learned so much from that. And now, when I think about that interview process, it's more along the lines of the preparation is important. That knowledge of what you need to know and, and what you you know the, what you know about that district going in is so critical. But it's not just the the what, the content. It is digging deeper and really talking about the how, sharing stories of how you would lead that way and giving examples of that, and then even connecting it to the work that that district's already doing and showing how you as a leader would even benefit the district more so. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the fact that every leader experiences failure. So what are some tips about overcoming failure as a leader? Yeah, I think that just realizing that failure is a part of it. It's not just something that we, um, you know, have to go through or have to survive. Like it's, it's the very thing that will help us learn and launch us to where we really want to be. And so once we get comfortable with the notion that um, failure is going to be a part of it, there's no person um, that you could show me that has completely bypassed any uh, season of growth because they already knew everything that they needed to know to get to that next level. That's part of leadership is that you don't know what you don't know. And so that failure, that growth process. I tell people all the time, if you're in that season where you're feeling inadequate or um, less than, like that's okay. That's part of the growth process. It's equipping you for the job that you are ready to, to have. And I think that's a huge point and a big misconception is that you have to know every single aspect of the job. I mean, like you said, being a teacher going into an admin position <laughs> as an assistant principal, that's a huge jump. I can only imagine what being a you know, principal to a superintendent, like, um, it's probably pretty overwhelming. But what are some other misconceptions that you had to overcome going from either teacher to principal or principal to superintendent? I think for me, you know, part of what defines my journey is just uh, the fear of the unknown. You know, every step you take, you you have that, that built-in angst of, um, am I prepared for this? Am I going to be successful in this new step? When you step into the superintendency, um, it just brings that to a whole new level. And I really struggled with fear in that in that whole journey, just that questioning of, am I prepared to do this job? And, and let's be clear, like that was a, a legitimate fear. I think I had sat through um, less than five board meetings from start to finish before I became a superintendent. And so certainly I'd gone through the coursework and I got my doctorate and all of those sorts of things. But there was this real fear of, am I ready for the job? I didn't know if I would even like the job. Mm-hmm. I knew enough to know that the work would be hard, but I also knew enough to know that it could be really ugly. Like at the end of the day, that buck stops with you and the weight of the decisions that you make in terms of having the the livelihood of the people that you serve in your hands is so great. And so I didn't know if I would like the job. I didn't want to move from the area that I was living in, you know, superintendency, you, you hardly ever rise up. It happens occasionally, but more often you have to go to a new community and establish yourself. And when you're talking about moving an entire family, that can be pretty daunting too. And so that 
that fear process of not believing that I was ready for the job was very difficult to overcome. And what it taught me was that, you know, fear is not something to just eradicate. It's not going to magically wake up one, you know, one day and be gone. The thing I talk about a lot, right? Failure is hard. Like that interview that was horrible, that was hard and it was painful and there were consequences to that. But that was a one-time event and failure often is. It is finite in nature, but fear can be ever present. And even eight years in, Josh, we were talking about, you know, I've been a superintendent for eight years, but I still struggle with some of those same aspects of, am I really ready to do the next step to whatever it is I'm being called for? And so I think fear's been a, a big piece for me to learn that we just need to lead through it anyway. And fear can be paralyzing to many. And so are there any strategies that you use to squash that fear to to move forward and, and get done whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, great question. I think one falling back on the people that I've surrounded myself with and and truly listening to their voice. And so if you have people around you that are prompting you to take the next step, even though there may be angst with that, that gives you the confidence to realize, hey, no, I am prepared. And even though I may not know everything I need to know to be 100% successful out of the gate, those mentors are preparing you. Um, And then the other piece when it comes to to fear and just getting out of that paralysis is coming back to your purpose. Like the questions I ask myself is just, am I being called? Am I being called to move through the situation, to lead through the situation, to act? And if that answer is yes, then we lead regardless. Mm So I can only imagine what the superintendent job entails and the amount of fires that you have to put out. So has there ever been a large crisis? I mean, we're in a crisis right now with, you know, the COVID-19, but (laughs) just in the past eight years, has there been something that you've had to, to overcome? Yeah, well, and I'm sure, you know, later on in the interview, we're going to talk about this, uh, this book that I'm finishing will publish later this summer. But the premise of that book is that I love my job. Um, I tell people all the time, like, I love my job 95% of the time. And people are like, man, like, Skylar, that's great. Who loves their job that much? And they're right. But the 5% is so very, very difficult. And it's hard to even describe unless you've walked down that road. And and that's why I wrote this book called Thrive Through the Five. But Mm -hmm. let me talk to you about um, the first challenge that I stepped into as a superintendent. You know, is it a new superintendent? You kind of dream of of just some of those big events, right? If you're going to be a principal, it's your very first time with your staff and the tone that you're going to set and the culture that you're going to create on that campus. Same way with the superintendency. And so you think about that convocation experience and the message you're going to be able to share. And I walked into a district in 2012, this district, um, that was facing extreme financial crisis for no one's fault, a whole plethora of of events in terms of decreasing property values and decreasing enrollment um, and and declining state funding. But at the same time, our neighboring K-8 district also opened a high school, which was financially devastating for us because we were the receiving school for all of those students. And so it was just a perfect storm of events. And walking into that district had to share with them the depths of the financial challenges that they were going to face. And it was an extremely difficult year, not only to make the decisions that we had to make that first year, but then in year two to live with the decisions that we had made. Yeah, leading through crisis has been part of my leadership journey for sure. So I want to know what you're learning through this distance experience, the e-learning experience um, right now. What are you learning as a superintendent, as a leader of a district going through such crisis? 
So I think that my leadership, the, the crisis journey that I walked in 2012 helped prepare me so much for the journey that we're on now. And what I learned in 2012 is that it's not just about the what. I truly feel like anyone could have come in during that financial crisis and known what to do. That was very clear. The difference between um, you know just managing a situation and effectively leading through crisis is the how. It's it's the decisions that you make and how you carry out those. It's how you can say you know the end of that first year. You know we ended up losing twenty percent of our staff, mostly through voluntary um, you know resignations because we had so clearly communicated the issue. But but how do you come out of that year and thrive through such a difficult situation? And it's because of how you lead um, and leading with love, leading with empathy. Um, having transparency and communicating that. So fast forward to, to now, I mean, Josh, when you think about what we just asked our teachers to do in the last 30 days, it's April 21st as we have this conversation, and this really started about 30 days ago yeah. um, in terms of the school's part of it. And what they have done has been nothing shy of miraculous. So I would again go back to certainly the what we had to make some critical decisions for us. It was things like um, being thoughtful about the readiness of our staff. We're a rural district, a thousand students. We are not one-to-one. We are not particularly tech savvy though. I have teachers who do great things on technology. So for me, it was understanding that part of my how is recognizing where my staff is and building capacity with them in order to really land where we need to land. One of the most influential pieces of this uh, crisis journey that we've been on was listening to our our state commissioner uh, over spring break. It was really early in this decision. We were trying to decide, do we close after spring break? We just sent all these people all over the world or do we not? And he responded back and he said, I just need you to know that if you choose to close after spring break, you may not be able to reopen. And that was like eye-opening for me. On March 10th, those words were eye-opening for me, but it really helped us figure out that we needed a long range plans to support students. And my job as a leader was to help prepare my teachers for what was about to come and the how of how we did that in terms of having empathy, but still having standards for what we expected them to do and then supporting them every single step of the way. That was so important. Yeah. Depending on where people are in the country, you know, each state is different as far as when they start closing schools. But for educators out there that are going through that distance learning experience, what tips or strategies would you suggest during this unprecedented time? I think that, you know, the simpler that we can make it for students and parents, the better off we're going to be. One of the the biggest decisions we made from the onset is what does that platform look like? Mm -hmm. Well, and even to back it up further than that, we had a phase one that was paper pencil because we weren't ready to transition online. And for us, that was really important, just making sure that the readiness of the entire organization is ready for when you launch. So when we did launch online, which was March 30th for us, we were, that capacity was there and, and our people were ready to go. So a couple of things. One is just simplicity. Um, We chose to use, um, we looked at a lot of different online models. We looked at a lot of school districts who were ahead of us and just felt like that single point of contact was so important for kids and for teachers. And so we built a Google site where all second grade students could go to one second grade page, click on a single day and would have a Google slide that would walk them through the learning for that day, as opposed to having, 
let's say a fifth or a sixth grader trying to navigate multiple different classrooms on whatever LMS system you were using. So making some of those decisions was important, having simplicity and how to access the content. From a teacher training perspective, we went about this from a very layered approach. So every day that we had um, our staff and part of doing paper pencil for a week was allowing us to have hands on with our teachers before we asked them to do some of these things. And so, you know, we always thought about, you know, envisioned professional development as a whole day. We've got to do this whole course. And this really changed our mindset. Day one, sign up for a Zoom account and Zoom with your colleagues. Day two, record a Zoom session and figure out how to upload it. Day three, start a YouTube channel. Day four, learn how to screencast. And so by layering in those tools and minimizing the number of tools that we used, this was not the time of today we're going to learn Flipgrid and tomorrow we're going to learn Pear Deck and the next day we're going to learn whatever it is. Those are great things and we've been able to add those, but stick with your basic tool set and use those well and figure out all the different ways that you can use those to serve students well. If the end of the day, the main things that are just the most important for kids is contact with their teachers, Mm -hmm. making sure that our students are well and cared for, um, and then having them engage in learning in a way that is, you know, meaningful and um, that's just going to work for them, which is great. I want to talk about something that's kind of been a thread throughout your answers, which ties in with vision. And I'm just wondering, you know, when you created your vision personally or professionally, What are some tactics that you use to make sure that you're constructing something that's doable? (laughs) That's a great question. So let me talk about vision from a professional stance first. Um, And then, and then I'll talk a little bit about personal vision, but from an organizational stance, vision is so important. Um, And I share this with people and, and I know this sounds a little odd, but it's really true as a leader that sometimes the easiest times to lead from a vision perspective is in the midst of crisis. When we were in the financial crisis in 2012 or leading through this um, COVID-19 crisis right now, um, from a vision perspective, that leadership is so easy because it's right in front of you. There is no question that the number one priority I have right now is ensuring that our online platform is up and working, that our students are cared for and being connected by, you know, with their teachers, and that my teachers are supported and are being able to be effective in this way. The hardest times to lead from a vision perspective is when things are going pretty good. And we, you know, in Gunner ISD, the district where I'm at, we're extremely high performing, you know, National Blue Ribbon Campus a couple of years ago, national FFA champions, uh, state football champions twice in the past four years. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's robotics or academic UIL, you're going to find success here. And sometimes that can be a challenging place to lead from. How do you continue to get to the next level? So for me, part of that process has been bringing in just a diversity of voices, um, as, as many people as you can bring into that process. It's not about the magic of a plan, you know, we have this huge strategic planning initiative. It's not about the piece of paper at the end. It's about the magic that happens in the conversations within that process. And so those are the things that I've learned from an organizational stance when it comes to vision. Personally, vision has been one of those things that almost kept me out of the superintendency. I had a superintendent that I loved dearly um, who um, left kind of suddenly. And in that departure, I had a lot of people in a former district ask me, hey, are you thinking about applying? And that district was uh, way out of my range, large 6A uh, district, which is not appropriate for a 
first year I was an executive director at the time. Um, and so, but those questions started my thinking about, is this something that I would really consider? And the thing that was holding me back was that thought of vision. I walked into my assistant superintendent's uh, office one day and shut her door and, and just said, Myra, I'm, I'm really uh, struggling with these thoughts. I'm sharing with her what some people had been sharing with me. And, and uh, she said, well, Jill, I mean, are you really not considering becoming a superintendent? And I said, Myra, I said, man, superintendents have to have things like vision. And she said back to me, she said, Shell, she said, you're one of the most visionary leaders I've ever worked with. And I think hearing that from someone else um, has been so key. The last thing I'll say just about vision is that it is always changing. And so, you know, as you aspire through your entire career in education from teacher coach to classroom administrator, to central office to superintendency, there are always like, what's that next step? And you're kind of thinking about that. You're loving what you're doing. You're finding purpose, what you're doing, but you're also kind of thinking, where am I going to be called next? When you get to the superintendency, that's kind of the terminal position in this journey. And so for a lot of superintendents, it's always what's the next bigger district, you know, with more students and more challenges to continue to grow yourself. And here I am in Gunner. This is my eighth year. I shared with you before the show, I think the tenure for a superintendent is like 2.8 years. And so we've definitely gone past that. But for me, it has been um, another opportunity to revision what does lie in my future because we're happy here. My family loves this district. I love serving here and feel called serving here. Yet I know that there's other things in my future. And so how do I um, envision what my next steps are in a way that is totally different than anything I've experienced before? Well, you talked about it before and I really want to dive into this. You are writing a book. It's your first book called Thrive Through the Five and it's coming out this summer. So for aspiring leaders, um, can you just give a quick synopsis of the book? Yeah. So I talked a little bit about it earlier, just that notion that I absolutely love what I do as a superintendent, but there's this small portion, this 5% that is so very difficult. And it's, um, I I don't think that it's just about the superintendency. I don't even think that it's just about leadership. I, I truly think that as we look at life in general, maybe outside of a pandemic, but life in general on a normal day, um, that we would all say that there is a small portion of what we do and how we live that is really painful. And I wanted to look at leadership um, and at life in a way of how can we thrive through that five. So the book is called Thrive Through the Five um, and really excited about it. That's awesome. And I want to talk about another project that you're doing. You are leading TASA's Aspiring Superintendent Academy. So what is that program all about? So as you move into the superintendency, it's a job unlike any other um, for a lot of uh, reasons. Uh, For the first time, you're working with search firms. That whole interview process is much different. Um, And the job is different. Um, In what realm would you uh, go to work for uh, seven different bosses that have most of the time little uh, backgrounds in education that are reelected on a cycle of years? And so there's there's so much that um, it's a very difficult uh, job to get. And so... um, the Aspiring Superintendent Academy is a way for aspiring administrators to come and to learn about the job and to hear from other superintendents and to meet with search firms to really get prepared. How do you interview? How do you prepare your resume? What does your entry plan look like? All of those steps that are not only going to get you the job, but also help you be successful in the job. I've been a frequent speaker at that event. And then just this past year, I took it over for the first time. And so that's been exciting too. Obviously, you're working on leaders as far as creating more superintendents with this academy, but I'm just curious on what you do at your in your own district to build leaders. Yeah, so I love being in a small district, especially because I get such access to our students, our teachers, and our leaders. 
that's the most beautiful thing to me is that I know every single staff member by name, of course, you know, and most of the students too, but, but I get to work hand in hand with our principals. And so because we're so small, that also gives our principals such a different look in terms of leadership. So my cabinet is literally made up of my three campus principals. And then I have, you know, an assistant superintendent and a director of technology and a few positions like that. But because they get a seat at the table, their perspective on leadership is so very different than in a lot of larger districts where that just isn't a part of the day in day out leadership decisions. And so we don't necessarily have like aspiring leader academies because our district is so small, but I would say that my principals are getting a, I mean, seat at the table view of, of what it's like to lead in this role. For those who don't have a leadership position, but want to make an impact, what are some things that they can do to make an impact, even though they may not have that leadership position? I talk to people a lot about, you know, at, at every stage in life, we need to be leading others and we need to be led ourselves. Um, and I'll start with the, the the latter part that we need to be led. So often as you rise in your leadership journey, those opportunities for mentorship become less and less in terms of you being led by others, often because those people become your friends and your colleagues because they're in the same position as you. And so that's always important to have people in your life that are pouring into you. But I'd also say that regardless of what position that you're in, that people are looking to you for leadership whether you're a teacher leader or a department chair or um, an assistant principal or instructional coach, whatever that is, it's not a, a decision of I need to wait until I reach X position before I can start mentoring others. There are people to looking to you for leadership now, so lead them. So that's a part of it is find ways to lead others in your journey. Find ways for people to, to pour into you so that you know that you're ready to go to the next step. And then just interview for your job every single day, right? It is about making everything and everyone around you better and the work that you do today that's going to set you up for tomorrow. You're writing a book. You're active on social media. How did you find your voice beyond your school district? That's a really good question too. I would say, you know, going back to what I had shared earlier about personal vision, for a long time, a couple of years uh, into this eight years in the superintendency, I've really grappled with this question of what's next for me? Am I being called somewhere else? Would someone else better serve this district that I'm in? And a year ago, January, um, just kind of had a watershed moment. It was at TASA Midwinter, which I attend every year and was presenting like normal and our women's conference, which I had attended and presented at. But it just really struck me that, you know, this whole time it's been a question of do I leave or do I not? And it really resonated with me that you don't have to leave where you're at in order to lead in the way that you're, which they are being called to. And so I really started thinking differently about how could I reach other people? How could I broaden my platform in a way to pour into others, but not have to leave this district that I love and this work that I do. And so I think this past, you know, 18 months and the book has been part of it, starting a blog, um, taking some speaking opportunities. I've just done a number of small steps, small goals um, that had ultimately landed me in a place that I could not have even imagined uh, 18 months ago. Jill, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Yeah, so I am at Jill M. Seiler everywhere on all the platforms. And then my website is jillmseiler.com. Jill, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you so much for sharing such wisdom tonight. It's really good to connect with you too, because you're 
practically in my backyard. So, <laughs> hey, and I will say this is kind of a little sad, but I think our first time meeting was supposed to be in San Diego this summer. I think you were headed to DVC PyroCon and we were going to meet there, which is ironic given that we've been connected on social media for so long and we literally live 25 minutes apart. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is sad that we won't be there. But yeah, I was going to be on Podcasters Row and then obviously that won't happen, but more important for people to be safe. So, absolutely. But, Jill, thank you again. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me, Josh.